0: folks. Welcome to the Aspire Natural Health podcast. My name is Dr. Tim Gersmar. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating digestive issues, autoimmune disease, and other hard to treat cases. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you interesting and informative discussions and topics, whether that's with us or other experts and interesting people. Listen, we want to reach as many people as possible and help as many lives as we can. This podcast is and always will remain free of charge. So we'll bring you the expertise, but we do need your help. There are two simple things that you can do to help us in our efforts to reach as many people as possible. Whether this is your first podcast or one of many, if you have found these podcasts helpful, please do two things. The first is share it with any friends or people, you know, who might find it valuable. Again, it's free. Please drop them a line and let them know about the podcast. The second thing, which is really important is to please head on over to iTunes and give us preferably a five-star review. Whatever you think we're worth, we're striving here to produce a five-star podcast. And it would really help if you would take a minute to drop us a five-star review. That way iTunes ranks us highly, other people can see and hear about us, and we can succeed in spreading the message of how to be informed about your health and how to get some help. So please share this podcast with a friend head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. All right, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey, folks, it's Dr. Gersmar with Aspire Natural Health. I am excited to sit down today with Dr. David Hanscom. He wrote the book, Back in Control. Uh, so we have to talk about chronic pain, a really big issue that affects a lot of Americans, and the general treatment options for chronic pain are really pretty dismal. Recently in my show, uh, interviewing Nikki oh my goodness, Nikki Pickering, there we go, Um, about the use of medical marijuana. We talked about that there are an estimated 58,000 opiate overdoses every year um, and that includes both street drug heroin as well as the opiates like oxycodone, oxycontin, vicodin, fentanyl and some of the others. The most common reasons that those are prescribed are for pain, which unfortunately can turn into chronic pain which can turn into chronic use which for some people progresses into addiction um with the fact that, you know, again, estimated about 58,000 people uh Actually overdose and die from those medications. So are there better options for the treatment of chronic pain? And I'm excited. I read a couple of years ago, David's first book, the first edition of Back in Pain, where he presented a very comprehensive strategy and a very like simple, common sense, but well backed up strategy for managing chronic pain. And to give this gentleman props, he's actually an orthopedic surgeon that came from a place and still does some spinal surgeries. He's basically putting himself out of a job or, or reducing uh, the need for his, his services uh, by putting out this message. But he believes so strongly in it um, that he published a second edition of his book, and he agreed to sit down and talk with me uh, this evening. So thanks, David. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Absolutely. So a lot of people are suffering from chronic pain these days. Right right? And back pain, the the statistics, especially for back pain and back pain surgeries, things like fusions are really pretty dismal, right? Right. So what is, you know, you can speak to this more than I can being an MD and having kind of grown up in the, in the profession, you know, what are most people's options if they're in back pain and they're going to see their MD, like what's going to happen?
1: Well, I think it's important to differentiate the fact between acute pain and chronic pain. Okay, fair. And we generally define acute pain as probably less than three months or so. Okay. And if the pain lasts more than three to six months, generally the pain becomes chronic. Mm -hmm. There's a research study out of Chicago that shows if you take volunteers with acute back pain Uh and you do a research MRI scan called a functional MRI scan, Mm -hmm. that as you would expect, the pain center lights right up. Right. That corresponds to the back. Right. Then they took these volunteers and they compared those to people who had chronic pain more than 10 years, Hmm. they found out that there was nothing in the pain center that lit up, only the emotional center lit up. Hmm. Then they followed a group with acute pain Mm -hmm. every three months for a year. Half of those became chronic. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Everyone that that became chronic shifted over to the emotional center and the pain center went quiet. Hmm. So you have the exact same pain, but you have a different driver.
0: Right, right. So that's the case where you know you know the the common complaint of patients would be well or, and doctors to this point of well, we looked for the source of the problem, so in a, in acute back pain like there's a car accident, someone falls down, hurts themselves or something the the source of the pain is pretty obvious you've torn something you've broken something, you've damaged something, and pain in that case is an appropriate response it's your body saying, hey, some part of me is messed up, right pay attention to the part that's messed up and don't keep like if your leg is broken the reason it hurts is because your body is saying stop walking on your broken leg or your broken foot right
1: right you know pain is actually critical for survival Mm -hmm. there's a disease called congenital indifference to pain Hmm. where people are born without a pain system okay the survival rate is between 8 to 12 years old Hmm. there's nothing they can do to teach people to protect themselves from pain So if you have diabetics who have no sensation in their feet or their hands, or you take lepers who have no sensation, they completely destroy their joints because they don't have protective sensation. Hmm. So in children who are born without any pain system at all, Mm -hmm. they have found out there's nothing they can do to help these people survive. Hmm. They'll put their hand right into a fire. They have nothing to tell them that they should protect themselves. So pain is a very, very necessary sensation to survive.
0: Right. And I think that can, I mean, it's easy to say for someone who's in pain, but certainly pain is there for a reason. Absolutely. And, um, you know, most of the time we want to listen to if if it's that old, uh, there's an old joke like doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the answer is stop doing the thing that makes it hurt. Right. Exactly. So, so, um, but what about chronic pain? So we're saying here, so part of the brain called the pain center. So again, you know, it may hurt in your fingers, or your toes, your arms, or your legs, but the actual pain itself is in the brain, how the brain is processing signals Correct. that are coming in, and then the pain, then the brain is sending that signal, okay, something is damaged, hurt, or broken, you know, now create this sensation that people experience as pain in the fingers or toes or or wherever that pain sensation may be.
1: Right, so I actually... Ask my patients to conceptualize the brain as simply a junction box. Okay. So you have all the sensory input coming in, mm-hmm. and then your brain interprets the sensory input, mm-hmm. then gives a chemical response. Okay. So every sensation—sound, taste, touch, smell—right can be pleasant. Mm-hmm. Then it comes into your brain, and your body secretes dopamine, oxytocin, mm-hmm. valium-type drugs. Mm-hmm. Then you feel relaxed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you feel relaxed, what you're feeling is a chemical surge. Okay. Okay. All those sensations, taste, touch, sound, smell, et cetera, can be unpleasant. Then your body secretes adrenaline and cortisol, Mm. and then you feel anxious. Mm. Then when you feel anxious, then you take action Mm -hmm. to avoid the sensation. Right. What humans have is a major problem is that thoughts do the same thing.
0: Mm.
1: The research MRI scan shows that thoughts are processed in the same part of the brain as the other sensations. Right. So positive thoughts give you reward chemicals, and you feel relaxed. Mm hmm Negative thoughts give you adrenaline and cortisol, then you feel anxious. Mm -hmm. The problem that humans have compared to other living species,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: we cannot escape our thoughts. Mm. So what happens is that anxiety is simply a chemical response to sensory input. Okay. Whether it's a physical sensation or thoughts, Mm -hmm. anxiety is not psychological. Mm. It's a chemical response to sensory input. Okay. So we found out that emotional pain and physical pain are equivalent entities. Okay. So it's processed the same part of the brain. The chemical response is pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. The problem with anxiety, if you treat it psychologically, it's a big problem because it's actually part of the unconscious part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And if you think about this carefully, every living species has a anxiety or fear avoidance response to protect themselves. Of course, right. But humans are the only ones that have a conscious, right? Right. So what happens is that we look at anxiety as that chemical response to sensory input has nothing to do with psychology and a psychological implication, but not primary psychology, There probably is a progression of thoughts throughout somebody's lifetime that creates this chemical response that feels anxious
2: mm-hmm. that's
1: probably the basis of chronic pain. Hmm. Because those circuits are lit up, so then when the physical sensations come in, you simply plug a different body part into that set of circuits. Okay. For instance, if you have an acute back injury at age 20, mm-hmm. comes and goes, no big deal. Yep. Let's say now you're 40 years old, and as people get older, they tend to have more and more anxiety. Again, not psychological, mm-hmm. because if you experience your thoughts, you get stronger with repetition.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you suppress them, it's even worse. Mm-hmm. And if you mask them, it works a little bit, but not really. Okay. So whether you, whether you suffer, suppress, or mask, you have this relentless progression of thoughts throughout your lifetime. Hmm. So by the time you're 40 years old, those pain circuits are fired up. And again, emotional pain and physical pain are, are equivalent entities. Hmm. So then you also have your back injury at age forty. Mm-hmm. That at age twenty would be no big deal. Okay, but what you've done, you've plugged another body part into those circuits that are already lit up. Okay, and that's okay. that's a huge problem.
0: Sure, absolutely. So so we're saying then that uh, so just to repeat two points there that we've got is one um, that physical pain so smashing your toe with a with a whatever, something heavy, right? Right. And emotional pain, um, having your, your spouse, uh, divorce you or break up with you. As far as the brain is concerned, those are equivalent inputs, right? right? Correct. Okay.
1: Both are acute, right? Spouse just left you, right? Just hit your thumb with a hammer. Right. Okay. That's acute, right? It, so it's this, it's that repetition. So What happens with pain impulses, as you know, with an athlete or an artist, Mm -hmm. with repetition, you learn a skill and you develop, quote, muscle memory. Right. Well, it's not muscle memory, as you know. Right. It's neurological memory. Right. So it takes a major league baseball pitcher a lifetime to learn those impulses and memorize them. Chronic, I'm sorry, pain impulses come in so quickly that you Mm -hmm. memorize them in about three to six months. Mm -hmm. Once you memorize them, they are permanent. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like riding a bicycle. Once you know how to ride a bicycle, you actually cannot un- learn how to ride a bicycle. Right. So you have these pain circuits that are now memorized. And once they're in there, they are permanent. And it becomes a neurological issue, not a structural problem. So even though the original injury might have been a bone spur. Right. Could have been a broken bone. Right. Could have been just muscle inflammation. Right. Those impulses, once they become memorized by the brain, is a huge problem. Okay. And I guess the most obvious obvious example of that would be phantom limb pain, right, where people have their legs amputated, and ninety five percent of them have some sensations that the leg is still there. Over half of them not only feel the leg, they feel the pain,
0: right It's the same pain right, right. Well, it's because again it, it it's not the leg doesn't feel the pain, the brain feels the pain.
1: only the brain feels pain,
0: right, right. So we're saying that both, uh, um, So I mean, a couple of pieces that are coming into play here. Uh, for good and for bad, uh, uh, something called neuroplasticity, the brain learns patterns, and once it learns those patterns, it doesn't forget them again. Right. Right. So that's why, um, like you said, you learn to ride a bike. You may be a little rusty. It may have been years since you've been on a bike, but within you know a few minutes, basically, you can be back riding a bike more or less as good as you were before. Right. So, right. <clears throat> So we get that. But what we're saying, which I think is new to a lot of people, is when pain circuits or even on a more emotional side I think when anxiety circuits or depressive circuits when when the brain does something enough essentially those pathways become memorized if you will or they become easy to activate, right? right? right. Which so is that how chronic pain happens that that there's a, a an acute injury that causes initial pain, then those pathways, essentially, that pain becomes grooved into the nervous system. And and when the physical cause has healed or dissipated, those pathways continue running.
1: Right. It's like when you turn on the light switch, the Mm -hmm. light goes on, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as that pain switch is turned on in the brain, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel the exact same pain, but not in the brain. You're going to feel it in that body part where the switch goes to.
0: Okay. Right. Right. Okay. So... What happens then? What does that, what is that insight, how does that change things?
1: Well, first of all, in any field, with mm. a mechanical, architect, whatever it is, you have mm. to understand the problem right. before you come up with a solution. Right. right. So once you understand the neurological nature of chronic pain, it's actually an incredibly solvable problem. Mm. So we've not been trained in medical school, residency, or fellowship to treat chronic pain. When I give lectures on chronic pain and ask the physicians how many, how many of them enjoy treating chronic pain, essentially nobody raises their hand. Right. It's not because they dislike the patients. They don't know what to do. Right. And that includes me. Right. Right. So I think, you know, from reading my book that I was in chronic pain myself for hmm. at least 15 years, maybe longer. Yeah. And I became extremely lucky coming out of these pain pathways. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how I came into them. I didn't know how I came out of them. And it took me another five years after I came out of these pain pathways to figure out what happened. I didn't really put it together until 2011, when I heard a lecture on this whole neurological circuitry by mm. Dr. Schubner, mm-hmm. and I, I said, "Go wait a second. This is what happened to me." Mm-hmm. So I went through the entire process myself,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I think you know when the body's full of a sustained adrenaline assault, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. So each organ system responds in its own way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when your body's under a continuous adrenaline adrenaline assault, remember adrenaline is a survival chemical. Mm-hmm. So whether it's outside stresses or your thoughts creating the adrenaline, it doesn't matter. There's over 30 symptoms that occur. Mm-hmm. I had 16 of them at the same time. I had migraine headaches,
2: mm-hmm.
1: ringing in my ear, mm-hmm. my scalp itched, these skin rashes popped up, mm-hmm. my feet were burning, my mm-hmm. stomach issues.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I had neck pain, back pain. I couldn't sleep. I developed extreme anxiety. Mm-hmm. At that time, I treated anxiety psychologically. I actually went to therapy. But what, it, what I didn't realize is that the more you – Again, anxiety is a chemical response to sensory input. You're just feeling the chemical surge. The unconscious brain is one million times stronger than the conscious brain. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to solve this unconscious brain, Mm -hmm. you have no chance, right? Mm -hmm. It's a million to one ratio. Mm -hmm. So actually, the more you talk about the anxiety, the more you try to solve it, your attention is actually on the circuits. Mm -hmm. So I was reinforcing them. Mm -hmm. So inadvertently, the more I talked about this process, the more I understood it. I became way worse. Hmm. So I'm not against psychology. It, it has a huge benefit mm-hmm. in awareness and support, mm-hmm. but you have to combine it with somatic tools that calm down the nervous system.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So once I understood the chemical nature of anxiety, and again, I did not become a major spine by having anxiety. I became a major spine by suppressing anxiety. Mm. Again, like we talked about before, when you suppress something, you think about it more.
0: On an unconscious level are you saying so if something I, is I mean when I think of that term suppression, I think of where people maybe we're using a different term repression where they've sort of banished it from conscious mem- conscious right. awareness but nonetheless the problem still lingers in the unconscious or, or still in the somatic Well as your well. body
1: is still full of adrenaline right so I had no idea so I was so mm. good at consciously suppressing anxiety okay I had no idea I even had anxiety okay. So I was going 1,000 miles an hour. Yeah. I went to the top spine fellowship in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get there by being anxious. Right. And I had a patient come in at age, when I was 28 years old, I was a second year or first year orthopedic resident in Hawaii. And a patient came in with an anxiety disorder. I actually had to look up the word. I didn't know what it meant. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, at age 38, I started having panic attacks. Mm. But I didn't have anxiety.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm.
1: And of course, once the panic attacks started, it was just... Game on. Right. And then by 1997, I developed a full-blown, what's called an obsessive-compulsive disorder, Mm -hmm. which is an extreme anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's repetitive, intrusive thoughts. Can't get rid of them. The more you do battle with them, the worse it gets. And so I not only had the extreme anxiety, couldn't sleep, had all these other physical symptoms. Yeah. I I was miserable. Yeah. And guess what? Every test that was done on me was negative. Right. Right, right. What people don't understand is that chemical changes in the body are real changes. Yes. I mean, if you become startled, your heart starts to race. You, you start to sweat. Your muscles tense up. Right. That's not imaginary. Right. 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 So the body chemistry is influenced by outside senses. Yes. It's also influenced by thoughts. Again, the sustained chemical result. And you talked about maybe autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. There's no question that 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 there's a you know a whole field of neuroimmunophysiology, which we know the sustained adrenaline cortisol response actually changes the immune system. Correct. And okay. Autoimmune diseases don't just happen. Right. Right? Right. So again, it takes a body chemical change to cause this autoimmune disorder. Sure. Adrenaline shuts down the blood supply to the bowel. Mm -hmm. It shuts down the blood supply to the bladder. Yep. It increases the blood supply to the muscles. It also decreases the blood supply to the frontal lobe of the brain. Hmm. And people in chronic pain are not going to hear this, but it's been documented in, in several studies that the actual physical size of the brain shrinks in chronic pain. Hmm. It physically shrinks. Yeah. Then when you treat chronic pain successfully, it it re expands. Oh, cool. Well that that's good right. news. Right. right, it's good news. Yeah. Right. So so it's all based on neuroplasticity. Right. So again you have these memorized permanent pathways. So what you can do is you create detours around the pathways that are there. Hmm. You decrease the body's adrenaline mm-hmm. and you can shift on pathways that that aren't painful. Hmm. So that's a long way of saying chronic pain is incredibly Solvable once you understand the problem,
0: right? So we'd say I always say this that I think the conventional medical system that we have, you know, um, obviously in my profession we level a lot of we look at a lot of the weaknesses in the profession. It's not to set us not to set aside all the positives, but I always say that I think the conventional medicine is a victim of its own success. Like in in your case, tell you, can correct me if I'm wrong here, but what I see is that surgery sort of evolved out of treating acute pain, if you will, like if something is broken or damaged, that's what's sending the signals to the brain and causing the pain. Right. So therefore, if we find it through feeling, through testing, through whatever, ah, and then we correct it, then the pain should go away. Right. Right. Which works great for acute pain, but we're talking what we've just been talking about now says that chronic pain is an entirely different animal.
1: It's actually not even remotely logical okay. to think that chronic pain would be structural, right? And right now, the the research out of Chicago, San Diego, Stanford, is stunning, showing how the brain memorizes the pathways. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. So the the common term they use that chronic pain is a maladaptive neurological disorder.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So if
1: you're doing surgery mm-hmm. on a neurological dis- neurological disorder, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And remember the beginning of the conversation. We talked about how the brain switched from the pain from the pain switches right. from the pain center to the emotional center. Mm-hmm. And so that's not imaginary. Mm-hmm. These research MRI scans show those areas light up, mm-hmm. and then the back pain still hurts. Right again, it's just a different driver.
0: Hmm. So the emotional. What you're saying here is the emotional center is now switched over and is providing the input to drive the pain circuits. Correct. So. We have to take a second, because a lot of people um, have went... Uh, so there's a very dismissive term that many, many people who come to see me say uh, that they've been told by their doctor, they've been told by other people in their life that, quote, my problem is all in my head, meaning my problem isn't real. I'm just faking it, imagining it, pretending that it's there, or some sort of defect in my character or, or psychological makeup uh, is what the pain is. It's not a real
1: problem. So it's actually illogical to think that way. Right. Okay. So it's high school physiology huh. that tells you it tells you that when you are under stress, your body's going to secrete adrenaline and cortisol. Right. 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 So we know those cause physical changes. Mm-hmm. We all know we are under a sustained stress that that's not so much fun, right? Right. So we know it's going to change the body chemistry. Right. So when the body chemistry is changed on a long-term basis, why wouldn't you not have physical symptoms? hmm So probably 99% of physical symptoms are caused by the change in the body chemistry. So forget about thoughts for a second. Okay. Okay, remember, anxiety is the result, not the cause. Okay. Okay? People say, well, anxiety means it's psychological. That's not true. Again, every living creature has an anxiety response. Right. Humans just have the additional problem of thoughts causing the same response, right? Correct. Right. So if you, if you put your hand next to a fire, and your body secretes adrenaline, is that imaginary? Right. No. Right. So thoughts are doing the same thing to your brain that that fire is doing. Right. So it's more logical to think that 99% of physical symptoms are caused by changes in the body's chemistry, not for a structural problem. So let's right. go to your irritable bowel right. diagnosis. Okay. Right. So you have an ulcer. So you do. So you do an endoscopy, and there's an ulcer in your stomach. Right. Why is it going to cause stomach cramps? Right. It's not logical. Right. So when, you're, when your blood supply to your intestine is shut down by the adrenaline and cortisol response, that makes way more sense than blaming that ulcer. Right. But we've been programmed as a society and also in medicine that there has to be, has to be a structural cause for almost everything. The problem I have in spine surgery is that you have back pain. And so there's actually not one research paper. hmm that documents the effectiveness of spine surgery for back pain. Hmm. Not one.
0: Well, I think that would be news to many people who must assume that since so much back surgery is done, there must be tons of proof.
1: So I'm a, I'm a busy spine surgeon, mm-hmm. but the success rate for a back fusion for back pain mm-hmm. is take a guess. Well, if you were going to have, if I you came to me as a patient, right, and you had back pain, right, so you had back pain for a year, right. Well,
0: as a patient, I'd want to say, well, I hope it's like ninety percent successful in treating my back pain, right? So
1: guess what the data shows? <laughs> 22%. 22%, right. yeah.
0: 1993
1: paper, nineteen two thousand and six 2006 paper. And there's a couple of papers that sort of hint that it might be more effective than that. Mm-hmm. But it's never it's never been compared to an, an organized, structured approach to chronic pain. Yes. So then my problem is, is as a complex spine surgeon, people have a fusion at, say, lumbar 4-5. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. So the surgeon goes ahead and fuses L3-4. right. Then what happens, the spine starts breaking down above the fusion. Right. Then five operations later, all of a sudden they're bent over 90 degrees. Right. In in a wheelchair. Right. So with spine surgery, the problem is that we actually are physically assaulting the spine with a procedure that causes a stiff spot in the middle of the spine, and we're hurting people. Right. At the same time when the solution is actually incredibly simple and (laughs) risk-free.
0: Well, that is... uh, (laughs) First of all, that should be good news to anybody listening. That um, so, you know, most people when they're faced with chronic pain or chronic back pain, they basically are given two conventional options: surgery if it's appropriate. And we're saying in a lot of cases, with a twenty-two percent success rate, I think we need to be very critical of whether that surgery is actually appropriate in that situation, right? Um, and or they're told it's basically drugs, uh, kind of forever, right? Which is one piece among many of this opioid epidemic that we have going on right now.
1: Right. So the goal that I have with my patients to go mm-hmm. through the process is pain-free, full functional limitations. Spectacular. Period. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had people on over 1,500 milligrams of oxycodone a day mm-hmm. come off all drugs, no pain. Wow. I have lots of people on 600 and 800 milligrams of oxycodone a day, off drugs, no pain. Wow. Now, it can happen in matter of weeks, which is unusual. Yeah. I would say the average is maybe three to six months. Mm-hmm. I've had several patients that i just sort of given up on. Yep. And all of a sudden, two years later, I get an email saying, I'm <laughs> fine. I had a gentleman last week who's been in chronic pain since 1995. Mm. He's had four back surgeries. Mm. I've done two of them. Mm-hmm. They were legitimate surgeries, needed to be done. Yep. But he didn't do that well. Okay. And he worked at the book. He worked at the process. And he did pretty well, went up and down, went up and down. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, bam, something snapped, mm-hmm. pain-free. Hmm. He's all of a sudden wanting to travel, Yeah, exercise. It's like all of a sudden he popped into this pain-free life. And that's what happens. Okay. I just can't predict when. So if somebody goes through the process yep. of calming down the nervous system, rerouting the pathways. Probably 90% of the time they get better.
0: So you're saying as opposed to a 22% success rate for kind of your average spinal surgery, looking at roughly a 90% success rate for following this protocol. If
1: they engage. Of course. Right. And again, the book is not a protocol. It's more of concepts. Concepts. Okay. So the concept is what it does. It takes a complex topic like chronic pain. Mm -hmm. It breaks it down into basically six parts. Okay. Then you have to address every aspect at the same time. Okay. And you're in charge. Okay. Once you take charge of your own care Game on. Right. The biggest obstacle I have is a lot of people want to be fixed and they don't want to engage in stuff at all. Of course. And I tried for years to convince them to get better. Yep. They, they I just, I can, nothing I can do. Yep. I want to also be clear on one thing that mm-hmm. on, you know, 25% of the patients, they say, well, I had a spine fusion. I did great. Right. That's great. Yep. So you're part of that lucky 25%. Right. So that's great. But for 100 people, To have only 25 get better and 75% either be the same or worse, that's not okay. Right. So it's not not like a spine fusion never works. It works often enough that people keep doing it. Correct. But again, there's not one research paper that documents it more than 25% 25 success rate I dare say that you're probably not going to go through an operation that has a 25% success rate.
0: Right. Right. And can't we be honest, too, and say, look, some of that 25% success rate is going to be based on placebo effect, right?
1: Well, remember, placebo is a desirable response. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, in your naturopathic world, that's what you're trying to do. So medicine has got the placebo response, response a little bit off also mm-hmm. because placebo can cure cancer. Uh-huh. It can solve pain. Uh-huh. It can change cardiac arrhythmias. All you do, all you are doing with placebo is harnessing the body's healing response. Uh-huh. And you are correct that we don't, on a given, in fact, there's some papers that suggest that every drug we take is probably affected because of the placebo. Right. It could be. Could right. be. Sure. So with a 22% success rate, that's um, less than placebo.
0: Okay. Okay. Which is about 40%. Okay. Right. Okay. But I I just
1: want to be, you're trying to explain that because people say, well, placebo means that I'm, that this is sort of a, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. Placebo is the most powerful drug that exists in the universe. I a hundred percent agree. And that's why I I understand that when your world, the naturopathic world, that's exactly what you guys work on is you want to harness the body's ability to heal. Right. Right.
0: Right. Absolutely. Look, I, I always, you know, we always make the joke. Look, if, if, you know, if we do nothing else but harness the placebo effect. Right at the end of the day, the patient is better and, uh, you know, if we haven't done harm to them, right. uh, then, who cares? Like, basically, who cares, right? Because, at the end of the day, you know, my, what I'm looking for is that quality of life, it's just kind of what you were saying earlier, right? Quality right. of life is restored. Right. The person is in a good place and if, if, uh, if it's possible to cure or permanently remove their their the disease process symptoms, great. Otherwise, that it's well managed, uh, their you know risk and their life and everything are in right. good shape. And at the end of the day, what did that? Um, you know, if it's placebo, I'm still happy with those results.
1: So I would go a step further. I've changed mm-hmm. quite a bit, okay, um, in the last year about mm-hmm. the whole placebo thing. Uh huh. I'm trying to find a different word for it. Sure. Because it does have a negative connotation. I mean, I actually want to harness the placebo response in every patient every time. Absolutely. Because what happens once you teach patients how to connect with their own healing powers, it's a different world, right? Right. So, really, what you're doing with the process, and I, we can go a little bit different direction with this conversation. Sure. Basically, when you're trapped by pain, mm-hmm. you're angry. Okay. And your body's full of adrenaline. Okay. When you're trapped in a relationship, trapped mm-hmm. in a job, trapped by anything, you, you become frustrated and angry. Okay. But pain is particularly bad because it's really uncomfortable. It keeps coming at you. Yeah. So people get incredibly frustrated. And you and I talked about John Sarno, who was around in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. who understood that when you were trapped, your body um, emotionally would respond he didn't have the neuroscience literature then, mm-hmm. but what's it's really happening is your body's being driven by adrenaline.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you're trapped by pain month after month, year after year, he called it rage, right? Sure. So then your body's really full of adrenaline, mm-hmm. shutting down the blood supply to your brain. Mm-hmm. You're not completely rational. Mm-hmm. And again, I've been through this myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you start making decisions that are pretty reactive. You're desperate to do anything that'll work. Sure. And so what you're doing is that anger literally disconnects you from your body's healing power. Mm-hmm. You flow adrenaline, cortisol. Mm-hmm. And so once you actually get past the, it's a tricky loop to break because the pain causes anger. Anger causes more pain because of the adrenaline, yeah. right? Yeah. So once you can start breaking that loop, and actually one of the steps in my book that we talk about is forgiveness, mm-hmm. is that it's not a religious thing. It's not even a philosophical thing. Forgiveness, let's go. You decrease the body's adrenaline mm-hmm. and guess what you get your life back mm-hmm. so basically anger disconnects you solving anger reconnects you hmm. so it changes your body's chemistry mm-hmm. connects you with that better immune response mm-hmm. and actually reconnects you with your body's ability to heal itself so I call this connected and engaged thinking and so it's, it's again it's that body's, you you're now harnessing the body's capacity to heal itself hmm. fantastic
0: yeah I wanted to say oh. That it kind of, um, you know, um, your, what you said earlier about, you know, the patient taking control. Um, certainly, I would think as a surgeon, uh, it's, it's a, basically the exact opposite, generally. Right. Like, you know, and th- this is to your mindset earlier of, of, you know, one of the biggest issues. We, we face the same thing, where people will come in and say, hey, can you fix me or fix this problem that I have? And the answer is, I can help you, but I can't fix you. And in in my field, uh, more than yours, it's very much about, okay, you're going to have to make these changes. We'll help you. We'll support you. We'll guide you. We'll troubleshoot you through this process. But still, at the end of the day, I can't go home and chew your food for you. I can't exercise for you. I can't go to bed on time for you. I can't do all these things. So we need your active engagement in this process. But I think surgery would be the ultimate, uh, you know, you come and I fix you kind of situation. Right. Instead, you're flipping that essentially completely on its head and saying, "No, if you have chronic pain, if you take control of the situation, we're going into some of the steps you're talking about. But right. you have a 90% chance that you could come out of that chronic pain. Yep. Just when will you come out of that chronic pain? Right.
1: Right. And we have seen people. A couple of things. We've seen people within weeks get better. Mm-hmm. Again, I think three to six months is more realistic. Mm-hmm. But. Um, it's, it's extremely uh, consistent response. Let me just tell you one story. I just have yeah, to... Yeah, um, please. Again, I'm a spine surgeon. I can see a lot of complex stuff. Yeah. But in the foreword of my book, you might have read the story about this gentleman, Mark Owens, who was riding his horse in the mountains. Mm-hmm. He got thrown off his horse and broke his back, broke his ribcage. Mm-hmm. So he had the surgery to repair his back, his ribcage rib healed, and over the next eight years, developed extreme chronic pain. Mm-hmm. could hardly walk, shooting pains down his legs, high, high-dose narcotics. Mm-hmm. And so he's seen two surgeons that said, we need to extend your fusion from the thoracic spine all the way from your neck, all the way down to your pelvis. (laughs) And by the way, we have to chop up your fusion mass to make your alignment a little bit better. So it's about 12 hours, 12 hours of surgery, which Uh is about an 80% complication rate. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. So he's a PhD scientist. He Mm -hmm. spent 23 years in Africa studying animals. Mm -hmm. And I saw him and said, well, Mark. So I looked at his spine and he had disc degeneration, which is normal. Right that is not a cause of pain. I said, Mark, I don't see anything to operate on at all, Mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. So I said, look, there's some simple writing exercises, relaxation exercises, Look at the book. Start the writing.
0: Okay, so we had to take a pager call. Uh, Doctor Hanscom is very kindly talking to me while he's on call. So thankfully, no major uh, issues going on. So let's pick up our conversation again. So you were take, taking, checking a look at his spine, and you said, "Look, I don't think there's a need for surgery."
1: Right. So he had a prior fusion in his, in his thoracic spine. They fused him down from his thoracic, his eighth thoracic vertebrae down to his. Their lumbar vertebrae.
0: So let me just say here for anybody listening who may not under, who may have heard that word but actually know. So in our back we have for for for. Uh, I'm trying to think of just an easy way to say this. You know, we have our vertebrae, which are like blocks of, of bone, right? And in between each of those vertebrae, we have the little discs or pads in between them. So normally they're all connected to each other, but they have room to move side to side, up, down. That's how we can bend backward, bend forward, bend to the side. A fusion is actually going to be Fusing those vertebrae together so they can't move right. anymore. Right. So this is a pretty. We're talking. I mean, in your most extreme case, we're talking fusing from the neck down to the to the pelvis. Basically, um, there's a there's an autoimmune uh, disease whose name ankylosing spondylitis, right. uh, which where the body unfortunately does that very thing. I've seen some more advanced cases, and these are people that can't turn their neck, they can't turn their spine, they can't bend side to side, they can't uh, if they bend forward or backwards it's from the hips basically right so you're completely taking away any any motion that someone's got in the back on and that very extreme case right so sorry just in case anyone was like i don't really get what fusion means it actually means essentially welding those two vertebrae together or more more vertebrae together so that they don't move anymore
1: so also for a clarification point Mm -hmm. is that is commonly thought that disc degeneration causes back pain. Right. The data shows it does not.
0: Okay. So, yes, this is super common. You know, I have people all the time who come in and say, oh, you know, I had a whatever, an X-ray, an MRI or whatever, and oh, yeah, my, my uh, you know, the, the vertebrae at the bottom, L5, S1, L4, 5, L3, 4, those are really common spots for disc degeneration, and that must be why I have back pain. Right. Right.
1: So the data shows the opposite, that your spine becomes stiffer, mm-hmm. as the disc dehydrate, that's mm-hmm. all it's doing, mm-hmm. but there's no evidence that bone spurs, arthritis, disc degeneration causes back pain.
0: Well, that's big, because I think most people think those are the very causes of back pain.
1: Are not. The data actually, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that we do not know about back pain. That's mm-hmm. one thing we actually do know. <laughs> so Mark had degeneration mm-hmm. at three, four, four, five, and 5, 1. Okay. He had some bone spurs. Okay. He had back pain, but yep. he also had total body pain. Right. So that didn't match up either. Right. So I said, Mark, and he's a, again, he's a PhD scientist. I said, look, this is simple writing exercises. Right. And I won't go into the process too much. The process is actually in my book and on my website, mm-hmm. which is backincontrol.com. Mm-hmm. And basically, it all starts with an exercise called therapeutic or expressive writing. Mm-hmm. You simply write down your thoughts and you tear them up. Right. When I came out of my pain pathways, it was the only thing in 15 years that actually started the change.
0: So I was going to ask to go back to your story. You were in a bad place, and how did you get out of it? So right. expressive writing, or um, I've also heard it termed free writing, where it's basically just get the thoughts out of your head, write right. them down. Don't worry about making coherent paragraphs, pages, sentences. It's just it's a download from the brain, basically. In your case, even just tear up the pages once you're done with them.
1: So it's actually critically important to tear up the pages. okay. Because cause what, what happens, remember, thoughts are just thoughts. Okay. Now, thoughts are real because they create chemical reactions. Right. But thoughts are generally not your reality.
0: Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: So the a difference. Yeah. So what happens, the writing simply separates you from your thoughts. So you have the thoughts here. You're here. There's a physical space between your thoughts and who you are that's now connected with vision and feel. Okay. Now okay. You're, now, you're, now you're back into the unconscious part of the brain. hmm So the reason why you tear them up is for two reasons. One of them is the right with freedom. Yep. It can be positive thoughts or negative thoughts. Yep. It can be rational or irrational. It doesn't matter. Okay. But the other reason to tear up these thoughts is if you want to analyze them, where is your attention? On the thoughts.
0: Right. right. So from
1: a neuroplasticity standpoint, your brain will develop wherever you place its attention. If your attention is on analyzing these thoughts, by the way, which are automatic survival reactions, mm-hmm. then it's similar to putting your hand right into a wasp nest. Right. 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 There's nothing there they're right. all survival reactions right so how you make sense out of these things plus it's a million to one ratio you have no chance right So the writing is simply a separation process hmm. It really is very critical to tear them up okay And then remember neuroplasticity is based on awareness separation and then substituting or reprogramming okay okay so I have people start with the expressive writing exercises okay and Mark looks at me and goes that's insane. <laughs> Right. So that you may, I have two surgeons that tell me there's 12 hours of surgery to be done. By the way, an 80 percent chance of complications. Right. Very low chance of solving his pain. Right. And the friend that was with him said, "Look, what do you have to lose?" Right. So he started it right. He said by the third day he was 80 percent pain free. Wow. And two weeks later he was pain free. I just spent a weekend with him about two months ago in Idaho, where, he, where he's on a 720 acre ranch for grizzly bears and. <sighs> Wolves. Uh-huh. He is riding in two feet of snow on a pack horse, literally pulling the horse up the mountain. He's completely pain-free. Wow. So no narcotics. Right. No pain. Right. No physical limitations. Right. And that was compared to 12 hours of surgery that probably would not have worked. Right. So I see variations of this story every week. Mm-hmm. And again, the goal is pain-free, full function, no limitations. Mm-hmm. Other, other than normal limitations, of,
0: of, of course. Of course, yeah.
1: So... The process, so there is, the three parts of getting better is to become aware of the problem. Mm-hmm. The, seg- the second part is you treat every aspect at the same time. Okay. The third part is you take control of your own care. But I also want to put another line of thinking in here. Again, I'm, I don't want to go in, into too much detail on the process because that's what the website and the book is for. Sure. But see, it's based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. hmm Okay. So mm-hmm. just one sentence on the play pathways. Of course, of course. About five years ago, I figured out my own journey that pain pathways are permanent. Mm-hmm. So are play pathways, <laughs> right? Okay. So the most powerful way of coming out of your pain pathways is take a break, hmm. slow down.
2: But mm-hmm.
1: I didn't realize at the time is that also de your nervous system, mm-hmm. but also shifts you off of these pain pathways onto something that's more enjoyable.
2: Right, right. right.
1: Now that's different. I'll use the word playful as opposed to obsessively playing to distract yourself, the pathways are still running the show. Okay. Right. There's a pretty big difference.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Yes.
1: So anyway, the writing exercise is not the solution. It's just the foundation. For some reason, it starts breaking up these circuits. Mm -hmm. With me back in 2002, I just picked up a book that said to start to write. I started to write. Mm -hmm. And within two weeks, things started to change. Six months later, I hit my own anger pathways, Mm -hmm. which by the way, I did not know were there. Okay. I actually thought I was pretty cool. Okay. Uh, no, I seriously, right, I, right, that, right. Was, that was my self image that I could take stress. Right. Bring it on. No right. big deal. Right. I'm fine. Right. So actually my self image was being pretty cool. Right. I had no idea. I came from a very difficult childhood. I had a cauldron of anger mm. that I was completely disconnected mm. from. hmm But again, my body has 17 different symptoms. Right. Right. So right. I, I didn't feel angry. I didn't feel anxious. But I had burning feet, ringing in my ears, migraine, headaches. Right. All of them were gone. R- I haven't had a migraine in 10 years. <laughs> Interesting. I I had ringing in my ears, tinnitus, Mm -hmm. for 25 years. Hmm. It's a horrible symptom. Absolutely gone. Yeah. Interesting. I had had burning in my feet to the point I felt like my my I felt like my feet were in a toaster oven. Wow. Gone. Hmm. Except as my wife points out, if I quit my own expressive writing exercises, Uh within two or three weeks, these little skin rashes pop up on my wrist. Huh. My scalp starts to itch. Right. My feet start to burn. So I wrote right. this morning. Right. It takes two to five minutes. Not a big deal.
0: Well, let me ask a bi- another big one that I've seen, you know, a lot being made of in the in the conventional community, which is, you know, awareness. Um, sorry, uh, like meditation, right? Uh, right. Awareness meditation. Um, is it Peter Levine, I believe, has done a lot of work around chronic pain and the right. use of awareness meditation. Would that be somewhat similar to expressive writing?
1: Yes. Well, okay. here's the deal. So, yeah. It's tough for people in chronic pain to do that because I did it with my patients for a while. I tried it myself. Yeah. And the problem is chronic pain is really intense. Yes. So I, I couldn't, the writing, I call it mechanical meditation. So mm. essentially every person mm-hmm. that I've seen go to pain-free has always started with the writing. Right. Maybe five people out of hundreds. Okay. So for, and it's, it's, for some reason, it's simple. Yep. To be, to do with meditation alone takes a very highly skilled meditator to do it. So the answer is yes. Okay but somehow the writing breaks through it. Sure. Now the meditation is a reprogramming tool. Okay. So at the end of the day, the meditation is a tool you use to reprogram. Okay. But if you want to combine the meditation with the writing, then it's really effective.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: So the very first, so
0: someone came in to see you, and they were complaining of chronic pain, in this case back pain, let's right. just say, but, we're, but one important point you make in this book is this is not just limited to back pain, right. this is any chronic pain anywhere in the body.
1: Right, there's over 30 symptoms. Right, right.
0: right. Um, One of the first things you do, obviously, check them out. uh, Make sure that there truly isn't the need for surgery or there isn't something more. So uh, for anyone who hasn't heard this, just very briefly I was telling David um, my mom's story. The reason, so anybody who doesn't know, my mom passed away a number of years ago from cancer. And the symptom that drove her diagnosis was chronic pain. So she had chronic hip pain. And went to her primary doctor, her primary doctor uh, basically said, you know, take some aspirin, take some Tylenol and, you know, come back if you still have it. She went back, she got physical therapy. Uh, she bounced around a little bit, got some acupuncture, tried a few other things to see if that might help. Went back to her, uh, her primary doctor several times and eventually her doctor said, well, you know what, why don't we do some x-rays and take a look at your hip and see what's going on there and they found the tumors and that was the way that she was diagnosed. So it's important To rule out that we're looking at any other, any more serious condition that's causing chronic pain. But assuming that's not there, then we're saying the first step is to go home, get a notepad, and do some expressive writing. Right. And for some people, like the gentleman you were saying here, uh, you know, two weeks of that, he saw an 80% reduction in severe pain. I
1: mean, his case is a little unusual, but essentially everybody Mm -hmm. that starts writing has some response. Mm -hmm. And again, the response depends... And, and everybody's skeptical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's almost, like, it's almost like dishonoring their suffering because it's so simple. Right. Right? Right. I mean, tr- truly. Yes. And I think it's insane. <laughs> I still, when I hear myself say I'm going to go, wait a second. I'm a major sponsor, and I'm telling these people to go home and write. But what's interesting, that, and I did not know this when I wrote the first book, that since 1982, mm-hmm. Dr. Baker started the process in Austin, Texas. There's over 300 research papers that say the writing works. hmm <laughs> It's huge. It's a huge depth of research on the expressive writing. Yeah. So nobody argues that it works. We don't know how or why it works. Right. There's no question that it's effective.
0: Right, right. Well, I think it's everything. I mean, again, if we had to guess, right, it would be everything from, like you said, awareness, and then bringing in sort of the... Kin- the, the So do you find, before I w- went and say this, do you find that actually writing it out longhand with you know a pen or pencil is different from someone if they were just typing... Uh, the, their words, would there be a difference there?
1: Well, let me say two things. So Dr. Um, Wagner wrote a paper 1987. Mm-hmm. The experiment was nicknamed white bears. And that's where he proved that when you try not to think about something. You think about it more. Oh, right. He mm-hmm. also demonstrated a huge trampoline effect. You think about it a lot more. Right. So his point was writing down the thoughts you're trying to suppress makes, breaks up those circuits, mm-hmm. but also saying verbally, expressing the thoughts does the same thing. Mm. So, again, you're using a different auditory circuit instead of right. a tactile circuit, right? Right, right. So, I'm assuming that the computer probably works. We don't really know that for sure. Okay. We also know from MRI scans in kindergartner, kindergarten patients and, I mean, people in, in first graders yeah. that writing is an incredibly complex you know, function that takes thought to convert those into a motor skill right right right. so a huge part of the brain is involved with writing but also typing right so i would think that we don't really know that for sure
0: right i mean i would have to say that you, you know given my druthers that i would rather see someone sit down with an actual piece of paper and a pen just because you get the tactile sensation of the pen moving across the paper you get as you said kind of the kinesthetic or the 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 actual uh you know, you're moving your hand, you're moving your arm, and at the end, you get the physical sensation of ripping up the pages Correct. as well. Versus, well, I can move the little icon into the trash can or or whatever it is, or right. hit the delete button, right? So, I would say that I, I I would think you would see benefit either way. But if I I had to make a guess, I'd say probably the act of writing you probably see a little bit more benefit come from that. I mean, I'd like
1: to back up in the conversation almost at the beginning. Okay. Just for a second. Absolutely. Emotional pain and physical pain are the same thing. So about four years ago, I somehow figured out that if a patient came in with a structural problem Mm -hmm. and leg pain, Mm -hmm. that was actually amenable to surgery, Mm -hmm. but their anxiety was a 10 over 10, Mm -hmm. I started asking the question, look, if I did surgery and get rid of your leg pain, but the anxiety you have is going to be the same or worse over time. Right. Versus getting rid of your anxiety and keeping your leg pain, right? which one would you prefer? Hmm. All four of them said, I want to get rid of the anxiety. Mm-hmm. In my own personal experience, raw anxiety is intolerable. Hmm. It's
2: mm-hmm. intolerable,
1: sure. right? Yes. So the fun part for me, though, as these tools, particularly the writing, actually yeah. starts breaking up the anxiety circuits, yeah. it actually decreases the conduction of the nerve. So the animal study shows that when you're under stress it actually increases the nerve conduction by 30 to 40%. Hmm. So again, your body physically changes. Mm-hmm. The conduction of the nerves physically change. Right. The pain increases, right. right? Right. So the most enjoyable part of the process for me is that their anxiety drops and they come in with a smile. Creativity comes back. Then as a, as a benefit, of course, the pain disappears. Right. So again, once you understand the problem, the solution is just not that hard. Right. So it's not about managing pain. It's about solving it. Huge. Huge difference. Huge right? difference. Again, I'm a surgeon. Right. And this is something that only hit me for my own 15 years of going through a horrible experience. Right. It does not matter how long you've had the pain. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. For instance, fibromyalgia is one of our favorite diagnoses. Mm. Not a problem. Mm. Again, you have to do it. We can only direct you. Right, right. But um, yeah, fibromyalgia for, for a RP surgeon is like a disaster diagnosis and we're, yeah. we're great.
0: Right, no so, problem. So the same process again, right, would work, be, you know, because in the case of fibromyalgia, there is no clearly discernible like trigger that's causing the so, cre- in the body in the that's causing the creation of that pain.
1: So it's true, but not true. Okay. So, so now the research shows that when okay. you do brain scans of people from fibromyalgia, uh-huh. your brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. it's all right there. All the switches are on. Right. Throughout your whole body. Right. Right. Right, but you also understand that you have to take 100% responsibility to treat it. Mm-hmm. The biggest obstacle we have by far is that people just don't want to do this. Sure. They don't want—literally, people become addicted to their pain.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. because w- w- what happens when you're a victim is the most powerful role that exists in the universe. So people, when they're in pain, they have fewer expectations of themselves. Mm. People around them have fewer expectations. Right, right. And people honestly just don't want to participate in the process. Right. And when you get a little bit deeper, and David Burns, who wrote this book, Feeling Good, taught me this, Mm -hmm. that there's many benefits to being disabled. There's many benefits to being in pain. Sure. So if you're listening to this podcast and going, this is craziness, really?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you got to really ask yourself a question, and I have my patients do this sometimes, and David Burns has people do this, what are the benefits of being depressed? Mm-hmm. What are your benefits of being in pain? Mm -hmm. What are your benefits of being a victim? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of them. Sure, sure. So that's part of the process of of understanding. So by far and away, like I said before, if people engage in the process, probably 90% get better. But probably less than half the patients that I talked to actually want to do the process.
0: Interesting. So, well, yeah, that's just so fascinating. And I mean, I'll agree 100% because I've seen people where they come in with an issue and we're making steady progress. They're improving, improving, improving. Right. And suddenly you bump up against uh, just what you said, either self-esteem issues where uh, or self-image issues or the benefits that they are deriving from being sick. Suddenly are starting to fall away. Their spouse or their loved ones are no longer paying so much attention to them because right. they don't need it anymore. Or more is being asked of them because now suddenly they can do more. Right. And suddenly you see... Their, their progress come to a screeching halt, and then many times you'll find they're no longer doing the things that were helping them. In my case, they suddenly keep forgetting to take the things that you've given them. They suddenly uh, you know, aren't sleeping regularly. They suddenly you know, aren't eating the healthy, nutritious food that you asked them to be eating anymore, and you're right. troubleshooting, and you're trying to get around that. And you're getting lots of excuses about oh time and, and this and that and this other thing. And when you you know eventually when you drill down, you just find out that uh, that the the benefits that they're getting from being sick, they're just not ready to let those go. Right. And uh, and some point you just have to uh, you 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 with love confront the person, find out if they're willing to move beyond it. Um. And some will, and some unfortunately some people just aren't at a place where they're ready to to make that change.
1: Probably most. It's interesting. I mean, Mm -hmm. so I don't want to throw the doctors under the bus. Right. The reason why there's so much spine surgery done, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: patients are demanding it. Sure. Right. Sure. So it does two things. First of all, it feels like something's being done Mm -hmm. and then it validates the pain. Right. Right. So the need to be validated is incredibly strong. Right. So what I've also learned is somebody doesn't want to at least have the cure. I mean, what's the harm of reading a book? Right. 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 So if somebody doesn't want to at least look at the material, I don't care if it's my book or somebody else's book, Mm -hmm. if somebody doesn't want to just learn about the problem, I just have to let go. Right. And actually, again, I learned from Dr. Burns that if somebody is really not open and curious, then you've got to ask yourself, what do you really want? You get to live this life once. What do you really want out of this life? Right.
0: You know, a piece of advice a mentor, one of my mentors gave me just in regards to patients is, is, you know, don't care about the patient more than they care about themselves. Absolutely. Dead on. And, and so if the, if the person truly, you know, because as doctors, obviously, uh, the vast majority of us are are, are kind hearted. We got into it to try and help people out right. to alleviate suffering, to make life better for people. Um, but and, and so it's hard to let someone go and realize that you can't help them. But at the end of the day, if, if someone is just not there um, again, you can't go home for him. You can't chew their food for him. You can't, do, right. you can't do these things that, that people have to be engaged. And so um, you're, you're dead on that, of course, all of us. We'd rather have a. Can you just can you do something to me, preferably that's cheap, easy, um, and doesn't require me to do anything and fix my problem for me? And right. as we constantly, uh, you know, are telling people, where where in your life, anywhere does that process actually work? Would just ignore a problem or or just do a quick fix and and it's permanently. Like, that that, that situation is permanently resolved, not, right? Not reality. Sadly, sadly not the case. Right. Um,
1: but again, in the patient's defense, yes. medicine right now is about 20 years behind on the neuroscience research. Right, right. So patients have expectations. They keep getting dashed. Right. So they get pretty angry. Oh, of course. And they remember, when you're angry, you're not rational. Right. So that resistance to change is actually part of the disease. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and please, anyone listening, we're n- it's not here to bash on patients. Right. It's just to say that unfortunately, um, it's human nature to seek out the, the sort of the easiest, least expensive. And I don't just mean cash. I mean, the least amount of effort, time, energy that you have to pick to solve a solution. I mean, look around the world, humans everywhere. We're trying to pick the easiest, quickest path to resolve our problem, even though right. most of the time we end up choosing things that fix it in the short term, make it worse in the long term. Right. So it's it's human nature. And then, like we've said, the, the the dominant medical system right now has understandably catered to that impulse. Right. But we're saying... That there are other options. So if you're someone out there and, and this is really resonating with you, obviously at the end here we'll, we'll we'll also give you Dr. Hanscom's the name of his book, the name of his uh, podcast, uh, excuse me, the name of his website. You get a lot more information. Um, and if this is something that's piquing your interest and you're thinking. Could this possibly be something I mean again it 's as simple as spending what let 's have a look here twenty four ninety nine um, if you buy it at full price um, and reading the what if we got here about three hundred pages right. um, and potentially within a couple of weeks with some simple uh, simple approaches. Right. There's the chance that y- you could be significantly pain reduced or even pain free. Right. Uh, what have you got to lose? Like you're not right. gonna. What, what's going to hurt you about taking some time to write down some pages, do some of the other, uh, the other prescriptions? But I will say you have an important point, which is you need to do all of it, not just right. some of the treatment. Correct. Right. right. So what happens if someone says, "Well, okay, I'll do that writing thing, but some of the other things they're, they're too much effort for me."
1: So again, it's like fighting a forest fire. Mm-hmm. You have to address every aspect at the same time. Right. So there's a friend of mine, Joel Conico, who's a pain specialist, also David Cassius. But Dr. Conico has actually delayed his retirement because mm-hmm. he's having so much fun with the project. <laughs> so he, did, he, did, nice. he, he retired two years ago. Nice. And we're yeah. seeing so many people get better so consistently. And yeah. It was so much fun to watch people come out of this hole. Yeah. No hope, no direction, no pathway out. Right. All of a sudden, they have a pathway out. And they start pursuing it, and you get some results relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, we're just having the best time. Nice. And it's, it's been by far and away the most rewarding part of my career is actually watching people come out of chronic pain. Nice. And yes. it, It's very very consistent.
0: Yeah. Nice. Well, we know right now that the you know the the general doctor out there is rating their job satisfaction at an all time low. Right. We know that suicide and substance abuse among doctors are at an all time high. Right. We know that most doctors now are are essentially telling their children not to pursue becoming a doctor. Right. Right? So you're right in the middle of this, and we we spoke a little bit. So can you you speak a little bit about this whole issue?
1: Well, I went through a horrible burnout. Mm -hmm. I almost didn't survive it. Mm -hmm. And what actually, it's not just physicians. If Mm -hmm. you look at the, I just looked at a review article on physician burnout. Mm -hmm. And in California, it's now up to 75%. Where 10 years ago is about 50 55 percent, so it's mm-hmm. actually climbing relatively rapidly. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the circumstances, circumstances that burn doctors out mm-hmm. is that they're trapped, right? Whether it's the medical records, the administrators, the regulations, etc., they feel trapped. Yes. Well, it's the same problem as chronic pain. Right. So that's actually how I figured this out because doctors are somewhat obsessive. Yep which I mean, so we suppress anxiety, Mm -hmm. we're very reactive, we work too many hours, and so it's not just about vacation time, because remember, stress isn't the problem, it's your reaction to the stress. So doctors are working hard, we're under a lot of stress, we don't have the tools to solve it, so we're adrenalized all the time. Mm -hmm. The same adrenaline drive that took us into medical school, residency and fellowship, actually mm-hmm. takes us down the other side.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So what happens is that when I give talks on burnout, mm-hmm. we use the word anxiety in front of a medical group, they wanted to just go through the floor. <laughs> but no, it's suppressed anxiety. Right. Right. And that's, again, I think you read my book that I was actively suicidal in 2002. Mm-hmm. I barely survived it. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't picked up this book to start the writing, I, I honestly, I've had 19 medical colleagues dead from suicide. Mm. I wrote a paper in 2011 in my national journal on 18 other medical colleagues that I know that are dead from suicide. Mm. And it's all about this whole perfectionism, Mm -hmm. which which was a whole other topic maybe we can talk about someday. Right, right. right. But we're perfectionists, we're self-critical, and we're always adrenalized, Mm -hmm. and we just wear ourselves out.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
1: So yeah, and the problem is when you're burned out, it's hard to reach out to your patients. Absolutely. Right?
0: Right. And we were talking about how,
1: unfortunately,
0: right now, the system is really built around incentivizing procedures. So we, we mentioned at some point, you know, that a procedure, a back procedure might be $100,000 right. uh, to do that. But um, there is no incentive to for the doctor to actually be able to sit down and listen to the patient's story, empathize with the patient, um, and begin this dialogue. Right. So we end up with you know doctors working in conditions that aren't conducive to their own health and well-being, right. and we end up with patients getting treatment that's again not conducive to their health or well-being or in this case, you know right. exposes them to significant
1: risks. Well, in addition to that, the you know business has sort of taken over medicine, sure, you know big conglomerates of hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. mm-hmm. We're actually monitored by our procedures. Mm-hmm. We actually have a we, there's actually a computer program hmm. that actually calculates our contribution to the profit margin.
0: Oh wow. It's based on procedures. Interesting.
1: And hmm. the procedures that are that were were being monitored monitored on actually ironically have been documented not to work. Hmm. So the business of medicine is now not only incentivized. Incentivizing us to do procedures that don't work, they're actually punishing us if we don't do them. Right. So then we become so efficient. I think we're actively harming our population. Hmm. There's so many procedures being done on so many people, so many different places. Right. I think we're a huge factor in creating our societal chronic pain problem.
0: Right. Well, on a on a a very similar but very different note, we talk about uh, we're often railing against the the over. Uh, the the overuse of cesarean section, for example, that we know in other countries, the cesarean rates are significantly lower. We're glad cesarean exists. We know that some women get into a position where they need to have a cesarean section done. We know by and large, the vast majority or or at least many of them um, are not truly necessary procedures. And yet they're significant profit. You know drivers right. uh, for for hospitals, and we know that you know uh, changes in the microbiome and other complications that arise from cesarean section uh, do significant harm to people. Right, I know you know many women don't seem to realize. Um, I, again, th- this can sound blaming, and it's really not. They just do not know that it is truly a major abdominal surgery right. to go in. It's not just a little. You know, little light, something, and there can be you know weeks and weeks of recovery from this, and there can be significant pain secondary right. uh, to these kind of surgeries. So I think, um right. uh, Yeah, you know, it's you know, the the e- patient,
1: right? The consumer right now, the last um, ten years are are at significant risk for procedures being done that do not need to be done, whether it's urology, cardiology, cardiovascular, spine surgery, whatever. It's it's not just our field. Yeah, it's become very universal. But again, our, our society has been programmed to consider that there's a structural cause for almost every symptom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, I don't want to, you know, I've, obviously we've all seen miracles of cardiac stents. and Oh, all sorts absolutely of things happening. Right. But you know, um, I've also seen people have massive strokes for a for a carotid catheterization right. that didn't need to be done, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, her entire left side is paralyzed for the rest of her life. Right. 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 So every Procedure has a risk to it. Sure. I know of an airline pilot in Hawaii 30 years ago mm-hmm. who had a little thumb laceration. The tourniquet that was holding the anesthetic broke. He died. Oof. Cardiac arrest from the from the lidocaine. Right, 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 right. Wow. So he just had to be incredibly, and I've been doing spine surgery for 30 years. I've had my share complications. And when spine surgery goes bad, it's really... Horrible for the surgeon and the patient. Of course.
0: Right. We don't want to overly scare people. Look, you know, every tool has its place, and surgery is definitely indicated in certain situations. Correct. But what we're saying is you know especially when you get to the invasiveness of surgery it shouldn't be entered into lightly absolutely that it really should truly be indicated and that the the essentially the the risks versus the benefits should make sense in order to do that surgery correct and unfortunately what we're seeing is the incentives uh, both in terms of, of you know what doctors are trained to do, what they're given the latitude to do, but what they're essentially being pushed to do right. by the systems that they're within is they're being biased to push those procedures even when the risk benefit ratio and the rationale for the use of those procedures don't justify the use of those procedures. That's correct, right. And that goes against our Hippocratic oath to do no harm and to keep the patient's welfare. In the front of our mind, Correct. basically. So, but from that depressing note, what the the whole point of this podcast today is that there are solutions. They don't that can help many many people. And actually, here's a good segue. So, I read in your book the interesting point you were saying. Look, if someone goes into a surgery in a bad way, like those pain circuits are lit up, those anxiety circuits are lit up, the Odds that they're going to get the benefit from that surgery are much lower. So why don't we instead do some prehabilitation? Why don't we get a person in a good place before doing the surgery so that their odds of, of having a successful su- successful surgery are increased? And what happened when you started implementing that plan?
1: So about five years ago, one of my nurses said, look, your patients are doing so much better mm-hmm. by doing what we call prehab, rehab mm-hmm. before surgery. Right. That we that I made a decision that if somebody didn't want to engage in the tools, mm-hmm. that I simply was not going to be the surgeon. Right. So we insisted that people start the writing, relaxation, understand the concepts, and our success rate went through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of patients did not want to do this, and, and they didn't come back. Sure. So that was upsetting. I had to make a big decision to take a bit of a hit. Right. right. So other people were, were getting the surgery done elsewhere. Right. So then what happened is that we would do the prehab. These are for major structural problems that I clearly thought needed surgery and would have benefited from the surgery. Mm -hmm. They come in for the preoperative visit about eight to 12 weeks later, the pain was gone. (laughs) So those are with structural problems that were very definitely surgical. Right. Then I found out the data shows the same thing as for knee arthritis and hip arthritis, Hmm. that the severity of pain actually does not correlate with the severity of the arthritis. Mm -hmm. It has to do with stress. (laughs) <laughs> Same thing with shoulder arthritis. <laughs> so it turns out that as you, and the data is a hundred of papers actually that support this, mm-hmm. that if you deal with sleep, stress, medication management before surgery, mm-hmm. that your surgical results are optimized dramatically, probably double the results. Mm-hmm. So we we now have a routine where we do, in fact, our whole institution is starting to put this in place, mm-hmm. where for every patient, every time, we simply optimize the results for surgery. Mm-hmm. Pain control is better, rehab is better, outcomes better. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 can get rid of the leg pain with the surgery, the back pain with this whole process, mm-hmm. and so it's been delightful. Nice, completely transformed my practice.
0: Nice. So we're saying, I mean, and and to me, this just makes sense, and we see this generally all the time in the sense that if someone goes into a surgery or procedure. Generally speaking, just more healthy, it makes sense that they're right. they're going to have better outcomes. And routinely, people who are under naturopath co care with naturopaths, you know, we find their surgeons are telling them, "Wow, I'm amazed how well you're healing, how little, right. how low your complications are, how you know how much less pain control that you need, right. uh, and everything." And it just goes to speak that. Duh. I, uh, frankly, it's common sense that the healthier you are, the more right. these factors are under control, the better results you're going to get. So if you need surgery, some relatively simple steps to get yourself in, in the best shape that you can for that surgery right. increases the, changes that risk-benefit calculation that we were just talking about a minute right. ago. Right. And there's the chance in, in these cases that you might do that prehab work and then not even need the surgery in the first place.
1: Right. And that was completely unexpected. My first book says do the surgery. Right. And I had not done the prehab at that point. Right. And so we're writing a research paper of over 50 patients with these structural problems and mm-hmm. we simply say, nope, don't need it.
0: Right. So, and again, just to point out to people who are listening, these are people with clearly identified Structural problems. Surgical lesions, right. Right, right. And so therefore, these are the prime candidates that you could point at it and say, the reason that you probably have this issue is this problem right here. Correct. And yet, not correcting that problem, but actually doing all the other work, solves it, solve the problem for them. So, I mean, this turns, you know, this turns the treatment of chronic pain basically completely upside down. Yep. Right. So what is the, in general, you were, before we turned on the recording, you were saying when you talk to other physicians, when you talk to groups, obviously you've got your colleagues here in the hospital. Um, What's the general reception for your work?
1: Well, I mean, people are intrigued Mm -hmm. and, you know, doctors are very frustrated because we're not taught this. Sure. So I would not be here if I hadn't gone through my own extreme chronic pain experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So. One out of three Americans, as you know, has chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Probably over half of a given doctor's office has chronic pain, mm-hmm. right? Because, yep. okay, yep. So, we're trying to treat something that we're not trained to treat, right? So the doctors get really frustrated, and of course, the patients get frustrated, right? So it really that's one of the reasons physicians get, physicians get burned out because they feel helpless, right. right? Right. So that's where it's been such an incredible experience for me because I was I was I mean I spent so. Just to be clear, I was one of the surgeons who spent eight years doing infusions for back pain.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: they weren't working very well. Mm-hmm. And in 1993, when the data came out that they weren't very successful, I just stopped. Mm. Then it wasn't until about 2006 that I started to use these practices in my practice. Mm-hmm. And then since 2011, it's been absolutely stunning. Just blown away.
0: Yeah, so it's brought more. I mean, like you said, your colleague essentially kind of has come out of retirement to do this work. Yes? Well,
1: he, he delayed. We've been doing this for six years together, but he, uh-huh. he was going to retire a couple of years ago, and he just having a great time. Yeah, but yeah, the, the doctors are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different paradigm, mm-hmm. and um, I'm also have started a national co- campaign around the word "listen." Mm-hmm. I mean the treatment of choice for America's healthcare system is to pay physicians to listen to their patients. Yeah, I mean, them. I mean, I think it's fine to make a living. Yep. I think doctor, doctors work hard and deserve a good living, but give us the capacity. Cause I mean the compassion index among medical applicants is much higher than the average population. Yeah. But the third year of medical school, it actually drops below. Sure. because they you're sort of crushed by the stress. Right. 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 So it's in there. Doctors are great people. They want. They really are incredibly committed to helping people out. Right. But they're not trained correctly. Right. So once people understand this and start implementing it into their systems of care, it's great. But there still has to be a systems change that still allows doctors to take the time to talk to their patients. Right. 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 So that's that's a huge problem that we're trying to deal with right now. But no, that, I think that is the treatment choice for America's healthcare. Promise is to listen.
0: Absolutely. You know, and. We know that some, you know, relatively simple and straightforward techniques here have the potential to, you know, uh, uh, to alleviate so much suffering. But on, on just on that purely financial standpoint, and this is where we see, you know, different forces wrestling, uh, basically could save the system tons of money. Because chronic pain is an expensive
1: Well, business. probably 60 to 70% of spine surgery would disappear. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. And then a lot of unnecessary testing would disappear. A lot of medications that are thrown at people quickly would disappear. Right. So no, I mean this, the savings would be billions and billions of dollars right. very very quickly, by the way. Right, right. But but more importantly, even if it costs the same, it doesn't matter because all I mean there's nothing more rewarding to watch somebody who's been in chronic pain. And by the way, my record it doesn't matter by the way how long they've been in pain. Mm. So my record holders she's she was in chronic pain for fifty five years. Ooh. And she popped out of her pain pathways at age 79. She's now 82. Uh-huh. And her daughters are engaging. She's back in action, living a full life. Nice. And it's just incredible to watch these people come out of pain.
0: Absolutely. So rewarding. Yeah. I mean, you feel like... So
1: yeah. doctors like that. <laughs> right. right. So if we just knew... So that that's where I'm actually going to... I cut my practice in half. Yeah. I'm going half time to bring this to a national audience. Yeah. And maybe in 2018, I'll take the campaign a step further... But from a governmental lobbying effort, as opposed to complicated complicated incentives, et cetera. Yeah. I get upset, by the way, when they say, well, let's incentivize doctors to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. We just need the capacity to do it. Fair. Because the doctors want to do the right thing. Right. We're not trained how to do this, nor are we given the time. Right. And we're not only incentivized for procedures that don't work, we're actually punished for not doing them.
0: Right, right. So I think on that topic of forgiveness that we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, a little bit of understanding that, again, in my world, sometimes, at least as far as patients go, MDs can be considered the enemy. They, you know, again, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of, you know, uh, whether, again, failed back surgeries that have made situations even worse for people. And then all the blame goes to the doctor who did that procedure, who ruined that person's life, who did those things. Right. So a little bit of forgiveness and understanding that truly people do get into doctoring for the best of intentions, but the system in, in a whole host of ways doesn't. Give them the tools that they truly need to to help people.
1: In, well, in, in, well, a 60% mm-hmm. plus burnout rate, that's mm-hmm. a big deal.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Right? Right. Yep. And I went through the burnout for 15 years, and it's pretty hard to reach out to people when you're trying to survive. Right, It's a huge problem. Right. But
0: you have a new lease on life. Yes? I do. No, I'm excited. Yeah.
1: I, I, I have probably triple the energy I had in high school. Nice. So what happens? You know, medical school, residency, fellowship—you're always adrenalized, which like is is similar to driving your car down the freeway in second or third gear. Right. That just sucks the energy right out of you. Right. 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 So I I get to believe it or not, people don't look at me as being relaxed, but compared to what I was, I'm incredibly relaxed. Right. So I literally have triple the energy I had probably in high school, and right. I had plenty of energy back then. Nice. But it's a different energy. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, for sure. So. If we had to sum up here in a couple of messages, because, well, let's bring this thing to a close. Uh, for me, it's it's giving people hope back again. It's saying that, you know, options are not just drugs, surgery, and live with it, but that there are, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, pretty simple and straightforward things. Like we said, for twenty four ninety nine or even less, you can get the book. Uh, you know, 300 pages can take you, uh, you know, a few hours to read through the book understand what's going on, and then, you know, David here is really big. The other piece he did, it's not, hey, here's a proprietary technique that you can come and see and pay, you know, thousands of dollars to learn this special technique. I mean, he lays everything out here in the book and is very big on that this this process can be extremely
1: patient-centered. Yeah, I mean, the website's free. Right. I don't even have people sign up for it. Right. And, I mean, someday I'll do some other things that maybe we charge something for. But sure. T- to me, there's just a basic medical knowledge that needs to be available to everybody. right? So like you said before, the book's called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Role of Chronic Pain. Yes. But there's a website, backincontrol.com, mm-hmm. that's the action plan of the book. Oh, okay. So there's videos, there's stories, there's all sorts of things on the website that matches the book. Nice. They connect with each other. Nice. And it's a work in progress. I'm still working on making it clear. But between the book and the website's probably 90% self-directed. Right.
0: Right. So, if anyone out there is, you know, looking at back surgery, dealing with chronic pain, we recommend pick up the go to the website, if that appeals to you, pick up the book, give it a read. By putting a sensible prehab plan in play, you may not even need that surgery and if you do need the surgery, you're much more likely to get better results out of it anyways.
1: Right. But again, going back to the very first Mm -hmm. paragraph of our conversation, I uh, I still think the biggest benefit is anxiety drops. Okay. Dramatically. Yes. Yes. And that's really remarkable how consistent that is.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, then that's, again, it comes back to quality of life, right? Pain, anxiety, these issues affect people's quality of life, their ability to live the the life they want to do the things that they want to be doing. Right. So anything that improves either anxiety um, or pain gives people the chance to live a fuller, more complete life. Right. Anything else you want to leave people with as we wrap up this podcast
1: today? So I talked to my patients. I said, look, they come into me and they don't understand any of this. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, I don't expect you to understand anything. I don't expect you to believe anything. Mm -hmm. I am asking you to acknowledge your skepticism. All that's fine. Yep. But just simply read it and start the writing and just watch. That's all. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. And so, that's really just being even slightly open to change is really critical because you're not going to come out of this podcast and have a new lease on life. Sure. Reading the book is not going to change your life. Right. So it's by engaging in the tools and concepts that are in the book that's what starts to change things. Where Absolutely. you actually start changing the nervous system. Right. So yeah, just take a deep breath, acknowledge your skepticism. I'm not asking you to even believe me tonight. Right. At all. Right just just get started
0: just give it a try right. what you know what have you got to lose as opposed to you know a surgery i think one of the things that gets people is my pain feels so bad it must be a big there must be something big giant really complicated behind this thing to make me feel so bad so when we propose some simple and straightforward and low cost solutions like you said earlier it just seems too good to be true that couldn't possibly tackle something that is so big in my life correct right absolutely but you have the day-to-day experience here of seeing that these strategies work and then all, all all the other years of experience and your own personal experience as well right right All right, folks, that'll do it for today. Again, highly, highly recommend the book. Uh, I have it. Uh, If you're uh, in the clinic, you can come check it out. Otherwise, pick it up. Uh, I think it's on Amazon, all the major sellers as well. David Hanscom, H-A-N-S-C-O-M, called Back in Control. It's a solution for chronic pain, not just back pain, but pain anywhere. The only thing you have to lose by giving it a try is your pain, or possibly a little bit of your time.
1: Right. Anything else, David, before we wrap up? Nope. I appreciate this. I enjoyed it.
0: Fantastic. If anyone is looking for a surgeon who who obviously lives this approach and you're in the greater Seattle area,
1: uh, you can check out David. Where are we right now, David? Uh, Swedish Hospital, Cherry Hill Campus. Okay. So I'm, awesome. a, I'm a Swedish neuroscience specialist.
0: Okay. So that's one option. Otherwise, check out the book. Again, the website is backincontrol.com. Right. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. All right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Aspire Natural Health podcast. If you enjoyed it, we hope you've subscribed to us over at iTunes. You can also check us out at our website, www.aspirenaturalhealth.com. That's Aspire as in A S. 7849. You can set up that free 15-minute consult. All right, folks, until we meet again, take care.